so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. You're listening to the ERLC podcast. <laughs> I just spit on the microphone. <laughs> what do you do is spit on the microphone noises. When the mouth when the mouth noises come, come out, out of the mouth. Yeah. That's and just onto gross. the microphone. Okay. That's gross. Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC Podcast, where each week we'll be talking about our work at the ERLC and focusing on what Christians should know about the things going on in the world. I'm Lindsay Nicolay, and with me this week, once again, is our president, Brent Leatherwood. Hello, Lindsay. It's great to be back with you. Thank you for having me back. Is, yeah, well, you're supposed to be my co-host. I guess I should call myself your co-host. Is it still weird to hear... Our president, yeah. Leatherwood. No, I was telling somebody just this morning how it. I feel like I need to look over my shoulder when somebody says, oh, it's the ERLC president. Oh, who's that? You know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, that's going to take a little It's going to take time. a while. Well, once again, we're so glad that you are in this role, and I'm glad that you are back as my co-host because it feels like you're gone so often. Well, so long as you keep inviting me back, I will. Oh, when the schedule allows, <laughs> I will be here. Yes, <laughs> if your little black book is open. Well, let's go ahead and talk about what's been happening lately, and we'll start with what the ERLC has been featuring this week. We have a piece by Hunter Baker, who's at Union University, and it's titled, Why Christians Should Never Resort to Political Violence, Sin and Serving the Lord of the Beatitudes. We've seen in the news in recent times, you know, you go all the way back to January 6th, and you just saw the insurrection at the Capitol. And we have seen, especially during COVID and even into now, we've seen acts of political violence. We've seen uh, People uh, with differing opinions and viewpoints demonizing one another. And unfortunately, Christians are caught up in that as well. So Hunter writes about this. He writes about an organization that he's a part of called Braver Angels and how they seek to moderate these conversations between people with different ideologies in a constructive and helpful way without villainizing the other person. But what I appreciate about this article is how Hunter Baker calls Christians to realize, first of all, our sin, and then how we're no better than anyone else. But then second of all, that we serve the Lord of the Beatitudes, that God has called us to a life of meekness and mercy and long-suffering in the face of trials, Hunter says. And that doesn't mean weakness, and that doesn't mean failing to stand up for our convictions as the Bible teaches us, but it does mean that there would be a distinctly Christian way in which we should do that. So Christians should never be a part of the political violence that we're seeing. And in fact, we should be peacemakers. If somebody's going to be offended, let it be the Word of God who does the work, the sword of the Spirit, and not because we are 
as many have said, just jerks. Yeah, he notes in here, American political discourse has moved in the direction of villainization as a preferred mode. And you see this everywhere around us. In some ways, it, it is even affecting discourse within evangelicalism. It, it's just this constant view that there is an us versus a them. And we just are continually in this almost like apocalyptic mindset, especially when it comes to political discourse, that if if we don't prevail at the ballot box, if we don't prevail in our political views, it will mean the end of our republic. And to be clear, this happens on both the left and the right. And uh, he's right here. As Christians, we're called to something different. We're called to something uh, much more virtuous. And uh, we're called to help proclaim the gospel in the midst of that kind of division. Because here's the reality. The Lord had every right to look at us as a them. And instead, he said, no, I'm, I'm going to come down and be with them and rescue them. And, and so we should be the people as this sort of discourse and, and division is playing out. We should be the people who come with a different message in the midst of that. And that's what uh, I really think that that is what can heal some of this in our political public square. Well, and may the Lord use us as Southern Baptists and as Christians to be a part of that healing that takes place. Yes, absolutely. And hey, as an aside, you mentioned that Hunter Baker, he is a professor over at Union University. Special shout out to Union because they just celebrated their bicentennial. And most people don't realize this. Union University is the oldest Baptist-affiliated educational institution in the country. And we love Union. Several of our teammates uh, were educated at at Union. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Dub Oliver, who's the president of Union over in West Tennessee, is just doing a fantastic job at that school. So just wanted to take this uh, brief uh, aside and and praise them for all the great work that they have been doing there for centuries now. Centuries, plural. That's pretty awesome. I'm glad you did that. We actually had a piece last week on our site celebrating their bicentennial, and the president, Dub Oliver, wrote that. And so it gives a little bit of the history, too, and the vision, and we— Again, as Brent said, we are thankful that they are committed to the Word of God and to being faithful to it in the midst of providing excellent education. Yep. Next is a piece by Lisa Meisner, and she is with the Illinois Baptist State Association. And she's writing about the Illinois Baptists and how they stand for life as abortions increase in their state. So this is state-specific, and it gives a little window into what Illinois Baptists and other Christians who value the sanctity of every human life, what they are facing in this post-Roe country. And uh, she talks about, she opens it talking about how a woman involved with an abortion clinic. She's a chief executive at Choices, which is a Memphis-based chain of abortion clinics. In a radio interview in July, she referred to Illinois as a land of milk and honey, which Mm. we usually associate, of course, from the Bible with a, a place of abundance or plenty. And the reason is because they are setting up a new abortion clinic, a location in Carbondale, Illinois. And so she's, she's, 
describing the ability to be able to provide abortions as entering e- the promised equa- land. We're entering the promised land. That's right, which is just we know totally backward and wicked and upside down. And she said, well, the governor said, Illinois will be a safe haven for the exercise of your reproductive rights. And Lisa goes on to describe how different pastors and Christian leaders are pushing back against this, and they're praying for change, and they're doing what they can in their community in order to push back the darkness and let the light of the gospel of Christ come in and save babies' lives. And it is a spiritual issue, as one of the pastors had said, and it's something that we should be aware of. Many states are facing this. We should be constant in prayer and um, hopeful about what the Lord will do through believers. Yeah, Illinois is one of those states that the post-Roe world is going to look much different than maybe some some other states that are much more oriented towards a pro-life view. Uh, their laws are going to be much more permissive uh, about abortion, and that's exactly what Governor Pritzker was referencing. And uh, in that sense, the director of that Memphis abortion clinic is correct. They will be able to go to a state that has abhorrent abortion laws and they will be protected there by the laws until uh, either the citizens of Illinois or or some sort of uh, drastic change happens uh, that actually finds uh, a right to life for our preborn neighbors. And that's why it's so important for folks like Lisa, who's a contributing editor at the Illinois Baptist State Newspaper, uh, and other members of the the team there at the Illinois Baptist Convention, and and pastors and believers. We have got to continually speak about the dignity uh, of life, and that is especially important in states like Illinois and others uh, where the overarching culture in that state is is going to be so permissive uh, for abortion. And it's going to look different there to be pro-life because they they are—they're going to have to take small steps, keep proclaiming the truth about life. But they're going to have to take the wins where they can get them uh, in terms of state policy. And so we're, we're going to be right there alongside them. And we're going to continually, at the RLC, going to continually advocate uh, nationwide uh, for there to be uh, a national right to life. So that way, uh, hopefully, we can, we can move even states like Illinois to a place where all life will be protected. Well, and it may take time, like we've seen um almost 50 years for Roe to be overturned, but we should still remain hopeful because, of course, God is the God of the impossible. Nothing's too hard for him. Um, Also, we should be encouraged by all the pro-life advocacy that was put in before Roe, and many did not think that it would ever be overturned. So let that encourage us as we continue on in our pro-life work and as we continue to proclaim the dignity, the God-given dignity of every single individual that we encounter, from our hidden little ones in the womb all the way up into those who are um, in their last stages of life. We have several other pieces on our site. I always encourage you to go and to browse our site and see what's there and what can help you in your ministry and in what you're wrestling with right now. But for now, Brent, that's your look at what's happening on ERLC.com. And now it's time for our culture section. Brent, why don't you let us know what's been going on? Well, Lindsay, without a doubt, the biggest news story of this week has been the pummeling that Florida has taken by Hurricane Ian as it made landfall in the middle of this week. And so this first story comes to us 
from NBC News, and it says this, Florida woke up Thursday to the catastrophic aftermath of Hurricane Ian. Ian, one of the most powerful storms to ever hit the United States, wreaked havoc across the state, cutting power to 2.5 million customers, leaving several hospitals without water and trapping thousands of residents in their home. Officials said it would take days or longer to assess the total destruction of the storm. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis said there were two deaths potentially linked to the storm, adding that the total number of fatalities remained unconfirmed. Photos and videos on social media showed the scenes of devastation. Orlando inundated by floodwaters, boats wrecked in Fort Myers, trees snapped like toothpicks in Punta Gorda. Part of the Sanibel Causeway was destroyed, blocking vehicles from crossing the bridge. And then finally from the the story, Ian was downgraded to a tropical storm Thursday morning, and President Joe Biden declared a major disaster, freeing up federal aid to assist with local and state recovery efforts. Ian had maximum sustained winds of near 65 miles an hour with higher gusts early Thursday as it moved slowly through central Florida on its way to the western Atlantic, according to the National Hurricane Center. So, Lindsay, I, I've shared this previously. I, I've lived through uh, four hurricanes, and you actually have family that live down near where, where Hurricane Ian came ashore. So, I guess, first and foremost, how are they doing? And what's your experience been like uh, with hurricanes? Yes, my family is doing well. I think the way that the hurricane went, it uh, the most dangerous part of it just missed them. Their house is fine, but their backyard, palms, trees, and some of that stuff is in pretty bad shape, but thankfully they're okay. Yes, I too have lived through several hurricanes growing up in Florida. One time we evacuated, I don't remember which hurricane it was, because Jacksonville usually fares pretty well. Mm-hmm. We, I would say that it sits in the armpit of Florida, so we just kind of remain <laughs> covered and shielded. But uh, we evacuated one time with our animals, and we lost a cat in the woods. Oh, Isn't that sad? That is sad. Ellie, rip Ellie. So your story of devastation from a hurricane is that you lost a house cat. We lost a house cat, uh, which does—I don't mean that to make light of other people and the destruction that they faced. It's a terrifying thing, all of the unknowns that are involved with that. So, yeah, my heart goes out to those who are really— struggling with loss. I've had family who have struggled because they they're in New Orleans and they've mm. they've had multiple hurricanes and had to rebuild their house, redo their backyard because of flooding multiple times. Mm. Mm. Well, these storms are there there's always stories of uh devastation um that that come from them. And at the same time, there are stories where incredible recovery efforts are happening and just as with any sort of natural disaster that happens in our nation, uh, Southern Baptists uh, were there and prepared and uh, were ready to respond. And so that is our next story, and this comes to us from Baptist Press. And it says this, Send Relief, the Southern Baptist Compassion Ministry Partnership between the North American Mission Board and the International Mission Board is working closely with Florida Baptist Disaster Relief, along with other state conventions that could be impacted by Ian. A sin relief truck packed with bottled water, temporary roofing, shockwave, and other emergency supplies was on standby Wednesday, ready to arrive in Florida once the storm passes. Sin relief is also deploying a rescue boat, which will be manned by a swift water rescue team made up of North Carolina and Tennessee Baptist disaster relief volunteers. They will pre-stage the rescue boat at Lake Yale in Leesburg, Florida, prior to the storm's arrival and would deploy on search and rescue missions as soon as it is safe to do so. 
uh, that that recalled for me a a tweet this week from SBC President Bart Barber, uh, who said just hours before the the storm was to come ashore in Florida, uh, he tweeted out something to the effect of. Somewhere out there right now, there's a Southern Baptist who is looking for his yellow hat and mm-hmm. yellow jacket to put on and is getting ready to head to Florida. And that's true. Uh, that That is what uh, Southern Baptists in, in these disaster zones and in these recovery efforts, that's what they're known for. Bright yellow hats and, and yellow jackets so that folks know uh, who they are and, and they can be seen and they are there to help. And I am just so thankful for, I, I, we probably don't realize how much effort, logistical manpower, et cetera, goes into pre-staging and then deploying uh, once the storm passes. And I'm just so thankful that there are committed uh, fellow Baptist brothers and sisters who are eager and ready to jump in and help because we know after these storms, uh, there are so many who do need help picking up their lives. Well, and again, to me, it highlights the importance and the value of the cooperative program. I was in a ministry where I needed to raise my support in order to be a part of the ministry, and the Lord provided. But just being able to pool all of our resources so that you don't have to go through that in order to fund the work that you're going to do. Of course you do. There is some fundraising involved. But in order to have that base that you're using to be able to serve people so that there is no stumbling block, you can just go out and serve, is amazing. And a part of why I love being a Southern Baptist. The cooperative program is just amazing to me and the work that it allows us to be able to do in Jesus's name. So as folks in Florida uh, begin the process of recovering and, and just kind of picking up after this storm, we know that our our neighbors over in Puerto Rico, uh, they have been doing the same for the last week and a half since Hurricane Fiona made landfall there. And an important development happened uh, this week because the Biden administration made the determination to uh, deliver a, a targeted waiver of something that's called the Jones Act uh, for Puerto Rico. And uh, this is kind of getting a little bit into the the weeds in terms of policy, but let me explain just a little bit. The Jones Act is a World War I era policy uh, that's kind of protectionist in, in nature, and it deals with commerce. And, and in this instance, it affects shipping abilities uh, immediately after a storm. The Jones Act says that only U.S. flagged ships may deliver certain goods between ports and a lot of times after an emergency, those, those ships will vacate out of the area. In, in this instance, internationally flagged ships can come back into those zones. But because of the Jones Act, uh, they are prevented from offering help. Here, uh, what was needed is fuel because large parts of Puerto Rico are still without fuel, which means all sorts of homes and businesses and recovery efforts and churches they're actually running on generators right now, and uh, the the supplies there are running low. Well, a BP ship, which is not American, uh, is transporting, I think it's 300,000 gallons of diesel fuel. Uh, it had left Texas, but it was unable to dock in Puerto Rico and get this much-needed fuel because of the Jones Act. 
Well, so the news story that we're going to talk about, it comes to us from Politico, and it says this, the Department of Homeland Security waives the Jones Act for Puerto Rico to supply fuel after the hurricane. The Biden administration moved Wednesday to allow a non-U.S. flagged ship to transport fuel to Puerto Rico, following pressure to waive a rule in the face of a diesel shortage after Hurricane Fiona. The decision came, quote, in response to urgent and immediate needs of the Puerto Rican people in the aftermath of Hurricane Fiona to ensure that the people of Puerto Rico have sufficient diesel to run generators needed for electricity and the functioning of critical facilities, Department of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas said in a statement on Wednesday. He called the limited waiver for this vessel temporary and targeted. The Department of Homeland Security's choice to suspend the Jones Act, which typically allows only U.S. flagships to transport maritime cargo between U.S. ports, will allow additional diesel into Puerto Rico days after the territory was hit by Hurricane Fiona. All right, so if you've made it this far through this explanation and through this Politico story, you're probably wondering, why on earth are, are we talking? This, is, this policy is pretty dense. The reason we did is because this is actually something we engaged this week as the URLC, and it all happened because on, on Tuesday, I had the privilege of uh, speaking with a pastor in Puerto Rico and uh, hearing about some of the needs of our churches in Puerto Rico. And they identified this fuel shortage as a real felt need there. So this wasn't just some political item that was being tossed around out there between Republicans and Democrats. The, the pastor that I spoke with said, no, there, there are churches that have had no electricity now for days. They're running on generators, so they're, they're trying to do ministry with this, you know, limitation on them. And then also we have Send Relief, who is operating in Puerto Rico. As a matter of fact, they have six response sites that are staged uh, throughout Puerto Rico that have the ability to deliver uh, 2,000 hot meals a day, and they're they're assisting with other recovery efforts in those communities. So, uh, needless to say, there are Southern Baptists right now and churches right now in Puerto Rico that were beginning to be very fearful that fuel was going to run low. Well, in a great example of Baptist cooperation, we were able to spearhead a letter to President Biden uh, that was jointly signed by Bryant Wright, president of Sin Relief, uh, Kevin Ezell, president of North American Mission Board, Paul Chitwood, president of International Mission Board, and, and me as president of the ERLC, to send that to President Biden and say, please have your administration consider immediately waiving uh, the Jones Act. And we, we cc'd it to uh, Secretary Mayorkas to make sure that the people of Puerto Rico and our churches that are already feeling just a strain because of, honestly, not just Hurricane Fiona, but just all the challenges that, that Puerto Rico has faced in, in recent years because of natural disasters. This is only compounding that. And, and so we said, don't, don't add to that strain because of a policy that can be waived and has been waived previously by President Biden and, and previous administrations. Let's not let a delay in doing so or failure to do so add to the burden that our Puerto Rican neighbors are already facing. And we're glad to report, as, as Politico is reporting here, uh, that the Jones Act was waived to allow these resources to get there. And there, there will be a Baptist press story coming soon uh, that details uh, some of this story. But I thought that was, it was an important, it, in the grand scheme of things, a lot of people will still kind of, wow, oh, the Jones Act, uh, I don't really get it, don't understand. But in my mind, we've got churches in the area 
We've got Southern Baptists that are helping with relief efforts, and we have a policy that was preventing resources from getting to them. To me, this is, this is exactly how Baptist cooperation should work. Well, and it's not often that you see a result of your work happen so fast, a good result from your work happen so fast. Lots of times it's years and years in the making. So that's encouraging to, as well. So props to all of you who signed on to that. I should be clear. There were a number of voices out there that were asking for the administration to please. So this isn't just a Baptist win. We were able to add our voice to that collection of folks saying, you know, please, President Biden. So that's the, I, I want to make sure that no one sees it like, well, if we had, no, I, I don't, I don't want to take that kind of credit. I am just thankful though, we were able to be there and be a voice advocating for our churches. So I just wanted to clarify that. Yeah, no, that's helpful, but still we're grateful that y'all were thinking in that direction. I do have a question about it. So this situation, is it just the case that it just wasn't on the administration's radar? Because there's so many other things happening in, in the world and in our country that they didn't realize, okay, there's this, there are needs there in Puerto Rico, which is a part of the United States. And if we don't get this ship through with the diesel fuel, then there's going to be an even larger disaster happening. Yeah. Well, so, no, it, it was on their radar, but there were some reports earlier this week that it was kind of getting bogged down in, in legal you know, reviews. And it's like, come on, this has been done previously. This can be done in a targeted fashion, which is what happened here. There's really no reason to delay it in that sense, when, especially when you know people are hurting. And I will say this, because it deals with shipping, it tends to mostly harm citizens who, who are located kind of at the outer edges of our nation. So Puerto Rico or Hawaii, that's when it really starts causing some some major issues because, again, it, it deals with shipping. So it it's an obscure law. It tends to only come into play uh, when we hear of a natural disaster in a place like Puerto Rico. Uh, that's what happened um, a few years ago when a devastating hurricane hit. President Trump uh, waived the Jones Act. So in that sense, there is a precedent for this, but this just felt like something where, ah, this is kind of getting a little bogged down. And if we can be a helpful voice appealing on behalf of our churches, it felt like the right thing to do. Well, again, we're thankful for that win, so to speak. We're thankful for how the Lord opened the door there and used a collection of voices to provide relief and much-needed supplies to the people of Puerto Rico um, so that their the disasters they're facing wouldn't be compounded. I guess, Brent, since you are uh, the baseball man— we would be remiss if we didn't mention just an interesting piece of culture and historic, I guess. wasn't Isn't there some baseball player that had some historic amount of home runs or something like that? You can tell how much I pay attention to baseball. Yeah, Roger Maris mm -hmm. in 1961 hit 61 home runs, which was the, the most ever. He, he broke Babe Ruth's record in, okay. in doing so. Mm -hmm. 61 years later, right. we find ourselves uh, with Aaron Judge, also of the New York Yankees, having just hit his 61st home run. He's got a few more days to actually break that record. It's, it is termed the American League record because we've now had uh, a few players go over uh, 61. But those players, right, you know, Barry Bonds, Mark McGuire, they're— They had a little help? Well, yeah. Their, their record should have—it doesn't officially, but it, it should have an asterisk after it because— their pursuit of the home run record 
came in the midst of the steroid era uh, of baseball. And so a lot of folks, I, I will admit, I'm one of them, are deeply skeptical uh, that they broke the record on their own natural talent. Aaron Judge does not have uh, those suspicions uh, about him. And he is, by all accounts, you know, just an all-around great player, great guy. Uh, so there's a lot of folks out there that are rooting for him. And so he uh, he went, I want to say it was like 11 days, just stuck at home run number 60. Well, he he got home run 61 last night. And now this weekend, he's coming back to New York and may very well break the record in New York City. And I actually think he will. I think he's going to get it. And so it's just, it's an incredible piece of of baseball history. I think it's fascinating that it's 61 years. 61 years. How crazy is that? 61 years. That is fascinating. Uh, I did pay attention to that on the news this morning. And just to close out this podcast here, a little debate. How do you say that word of that little star-like thing that you put up at the top of something, the doot-doot? An asterisk? Asterisk? Well, it ends in an S-K. You just said, okay, asterisk or asterisks or asterisks. How do you say it? Because I can't. It's A-S-T-E-R-I-S-K. So say it. An asterisk? Asterisk? I think I feel like you just said asterisk before. And I say asterisk. <laughs> so obviously, it's one of those words I try to avoid saying because I don't know how to properly say it. You say it like it ends in a C. I, I think I always had it ending in a CK. Hmm. I never say the word because I don't know how you're to like, say it. You're like one of those people who says escape. Probably escape. I do say escape. Now, okay, thank now you. I would be one of those people who would say nuclear. <laughs> <laughs> nuclear. So I have to work on that nuclear. Yes, but nuclear. I would say nuclear. Yes, but anyways, it has an asterisk after <laughs> <laughs> See, if you think about it too much, it's really hard to talk. It does, it does, yes. Yeah, it, it does have that effect. Anyway, but anyways. Well, this just been our little grammar lesson here on the ERLC podcast, and I'm so glad, as you say, that you could be the Ed McMahon to my Johnny Carson. Although I would argue that the roles are reversed, but still, it's always a pleasure having you here. Thank you for having me back. Just a reminder, you can find links to all the things we talked about today in the show notes. And if you like the podcast, please consider helping us spread the word by sharing the episode on social media or going into your favorite podcast app and leaving us a rating and review. The ERLC podcast is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and is hosted by Lindsay Nicolay and Brent Leatherwood. Technical production provided by Owens Productions. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. And in addition to listening to the ERLC podcast, be sure to check out our other ERLC podcasts. The Digital Public Square airs every Monday, and its host is Jason Thacker, who is one of the leading voices on technology and ethics. And if you like staying informed about important policy decisions that matter to Southern Baptists, Capital Conversations is our podcast directly from Capitol Hill, which is hosted by our colleague, Chelsea Sobolet. Search for The Digital Public Square and Capital Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back next week with more content. Mm-hmm.